Last night, I left you with that scene where he does indeed breathe on them, where he appears, we believe, in that same room, that upper room, where he had been with them just a few days before for a Passover meal. Much has happened since then. They are disturbed. They are afraid. They are a remnant. They are there, the doors locked, out of fear. John is there. John, the only one who did not run away at the first sign of trouble, probably because he was young enough not to be arrested. And it was there that John saw, with Mary beside him, the birth, we spoke about birth last night, the birth of the church. And appropriately, what does the Lord say? Behold your son, behold your mother. We heard this weekend at Mass, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I. That was a rather important threesome, Jesus, Mary, and John. Breathe, to breathe, to breathe out and to breathe in. We'll hear this line again at Pentecost, the same gospel. The word is extremely rare in Scripture. In fact, it's only used three times. And the word in the Greek is emphasio. You'll hear doctors and nurses out there, any of us, the root of emphysema. It's used in Genesis when God breathed into the nostrils of Adam, transforming mere clay into a human being. It's used by Ezekiel to reconstitute dry bones so that they might recapture the breath of life. And the word really means to fill, to inflate, like kind of when we blow up a balloon for a kid or grandkid or nephews and nieces. I had an occasion with Monsignor King to actually understand this text even more graphically. I was traveling with him, and it's the only time in my life that I went scuba diving. I scuba dove. Is that the right tense? I don't know. Monsignor did not join me beneath the waves. And when you scuba dive, they teach you to do something counterintuitive, to breathe out, to constantly breathe out. If you breathe in underwater, not good, not good. You've heard of the bends. You breathe out, you breathe out, you breathe out. And all of us naturally breathe in. And so that very image of Jesus breathing out into the life of the church, that early first community in the upper room, the new body of Christ taking life, it tells us something to breathe out. And you and I have to do it, doctors and nurses out there, if we resuscitate someone. But because I was with Monsignor King and it was a nice trip and I scuba dove and I got a sermon out of it at Pentecost, 
It was a tax write-off, the whole trip. <laughs> you can ask yourself again, think about this, really think about it. If you rose from the dead, who would you first appear to? If you, wouldn't you want to go home? Wouldn't you want to see your family? We have no mention, by the way, of his mother there. Ancient Easter mythology says there must have been appearances to her, but they're not recorded. All the appearances are disciples, right? We think a husband and wife on the road to Emmaus, to Thomas, a week later, to the women, to Mary Magdalene in the garden. Why? Again, go back to the beginning, his birth. Yesterday I spoke about Luke and the Annunciation both to Zechariah and then to Mary. Zechariah, silence. Mary, the Magnificat. The Gospel of Matthew begins with this genealogy tracing Jesus' origin all the way to the beginning through 14 generations and then 14 generations and then 14 generations and finally to his father Joseph. But think about that bloodline. His father Joseph? Joseph shares no blood with Jesus. He's a stepfather. And it should tell us something from the beginning about the church. You'll remember a few years back with all the commotion of the Da Vinci Code and Jesus had some relationship with Mary Magdalene and there's this lineage or bloodline out there somewhere we can't find. It hasn't come. It doesn't make any sense, not just in faith, but in history. For what's more important than your own family bloodline? Nothing. And history is full, whether they be Bourbons, or Medicis, or Kennedys, or Bushes, or Clintons, whatever. That's an important line. As I said yesterday, the priesthood used to be passed down that way in the Jewish mode. But if he is who he says he is, in the real strict sense of DNA, the creator and author of all of life, he is already related to us right from the beginning in blood. But he chose, by blood, to be related to all of us who bear his name in baptism by water in the Holy Spirit. That's his family. He doesn't need a bloodline with us because all of creation comes from him and his Father and his Spirit. He gathers us together in a much different way. And that element of new breath takes on a missionary aspect when he ascends to the Father and says, go to all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. That's his family line. That's who we are. He's now in that same room where he celebrated what we consider sometimes the first Eucharist. But it wasn't really. He was at Eucharist all the time, as I said, his whole life was priestly. It wasn't just cultic in a church or in a temple or a synagogue. It was as everything he did. And the first great cathedral of his mission were those plains of Galilee 
where he spoke the Beatitudes, the Word of God, and where he passed out the loaves and the fishes. That great landscape, if you've been there, that looks a bit like, oh, Northern California, Sonoma, Napa, beautiful, beautiful, lush, hills, water, an outdoor cathedral. The story of the loaves and fishes is recounted in all four Gospels. And the apostles were encouraged by what Jesus said to share of themselves. What did Jesus say? If you remember, go feed them. You feed them. Jesus challenges them to find food, to find nourishment for them. And they find the little boy with the loaves and the fishes. The apostles first point to the impracticality of Jesus' request. How can we do this? We just don't have enough. He'll take care of the enough, but you do the work. Don't ever overlook the physical nature of any of the miracles. Remember, too, the notion of abundance. When they'd all been fed, there was still so much left over, it filled 12 wicker baskets. And the word that's used to fill those baskets is the same word we now use for the host, by the way, fragments. Fragments, broken pieces, reminding us of our humanity. Luke's readers in the first century would not have missed that connection because it was so close verbally. And, of course, we don't miss the connection with the idea that he took, he blessed, and he gave. In another Easter account, when the disciples reached the empty tomb, excited, remember what the angels say? Why are you looking in empty tombs? Go to Galilee and meet him. It's a code word to them and to us to go in to the place where he worked, the place of the loaves and the fishes and the Beatitudes, and to do as he did, to carry on as his own hands, as his own feet, as his own heart, as part of that Pauline sense of the body. Some of you may run your own business. Some of you may have inherited one. Some of you know somebody who did. There's nothing more difficult in a business that's family-operated or owned or was started by a dynamic leader, right, than what to do when he's gone or retires, how to pass that dynamism on. And in effect, because Jesus Christ had no bloodline family, he, a real human being, knew that he would be returning to the Father and would have to have the inheritance set up just right. To work. And that's what he did. He had the same problem. What do you do? How do you keep it to the next generation and the generation afterward and the generation afterward? And the truth of the matter is, no matter who he picked, no matter how good they were, and the stories they tell us right from the beginning about Peter, his number one choice, are a reminder of our humanity. And so his guarantee of course, is his spirit, that very breath with which 
He animates them then and now. That's how it still works. No human being can keep something like this going 2,000 years. You can see the image of him, the man, and the notion of the church, even the physical aspect of a beautiful place like this, in his relationship to the most important thing in Judaism, the temple. I said yesterday that it began when the angel appeared in the holiest place in all of Judaism, the Temple Mount, where the Holy of Holies kept the Ten Commandments. There was Zechariah. But what would happen to that Temple Mount? What's there now in Jerusalem? It's gone. All that exists now is its western wailing wall, a wall where you see people put those little prayers in. That's the most important place in Judaism. It is the presence of God on earth, extremely important. But it was a building, a building, a building that was deeply associated with Jesus Christ the man. Remember from the beginning, Mary and Joseph took him there, and Anna and Simeon proclaimed, Nunc dimittis, now I may go in peace, for I have seen my Savior. When he was 12, he mesmerized them as a 12-year-old for his bar mitzvah. And then he was there all the time. I can't even remember how many times. This morning, by the way, that gospel of the withered hand, where he heals the hand, that creative act, that happened in the temple. The woman with the hemorrhage that he healed, in the temple, the man born blind who sees in the temple, all found healing not from those temple priests, but from Jesus. Matthew, the tax collector, the woman at the well, forgiveness, they experience it through Jesus. He was not eliminating the temple so much as redefining it, indeed relocating it in him. John the Baptist used those words, and they'll take on a different meaning for us tomorrow night, but at his baptism, behold the Lamb of God. Those same words that we say before communion. That was ritualistic temple language, that the Lamb would be slain and ritualistically bring about forgiveness. All of the temple imagery even that anger when he didn't like the money changers, all of it. And then when he said those words that probably got him most in trouble because it was the most important thing in their lives, built by Solomon himself, when he said, this temple will be destroyed, but it will be rebuilt in three days, they had no idea what he was talking about. They thought, the radical was going to destroy their temple. And he meant, of course, himself, the temple of his body, the true temple now of the new covenant of the Holy Spirit. And what happened there on Good Friday? Remember, the temple veil in the holiest place was torn in two. The old covenant was over. The new covenant was beginning. And by the end of the first century, and here's the remarkable thing, by the end of the first century, 
those very disciples who were so scared that day in the upper room, but who saw the glorified body and the wounds, the temple that is Jesus Christ, by the end of the first century, as they went about that whole Roman Mediterranean world, doing as he asked, healing, forgiving, feeding, all that he had done in Galilee, that they now did corporately everywhere, the temple would be destroyed by the year 70 under the emperor Titus. If you go to Rome and see the Arch of Titus, you can actually see the menorah of the great temple of Jerusalem etched in the Arch of Titus as one of the spoils they brought back to Rome. In Judaism, there is some thought, especially today, that someday there will be a third temple at the Temple Mount. I would bet against it. Something tells me that there is something greater than the temple in our world. Tomorrow night, that temple.